Amen. Great is God's faithfulness. You know, so often we talk about our faithfulness. But our faithfulness is nothing. It is God's faithfulness that matters. And without God's faithfulness, we couldn't even be faithful. So we praise the Lord for His faithfulness. This morning, I'd like to talk to you about racism. Human value and our response as Christians. Not because I'm an expert on this topic or that I have all the issues around it figured out. I'm still on the journey. I'm learning. I'm listening. Trying to listen. I'm growing in my understanding on the topic of racism. And in a very large sense, the sermon today is still in progress. But, you know, sometimes we need to get the conversation started, even if we know that there is more to learn. Sometimes we need to start the conversation because we know that there is more for us to learn. And so this morning, I'm starting the conversation. And I'm hoping the conversation can ripple past the pulpit. And that our church family can begin talking about this issue. Uh, Pain and hurt can only be dealt with when we're willing to discuss it and converse with one another. And discussion does not mean that that I do all the talking. (laughs) Discussion means that I do quite a bit of listening. And I try and put myself in your shoes. And we need to have that discussion as a church. Why? Because it's here. Why? Because the city that we live in is wrestling with this issue. Why? Because the nation that we identify as Americans and are, are a part of, this is, this is not only part of our history, this is, this is part of our present. So we need to, to deal with that. And as we look at that topic together, I just invite you to join me in praying that the Lord would, uh, would bless us as we start this conversation together and would lead and guide us as we look to His Word. Will you do that with me? Heavenly Father... Your word is the answer. As Psalms tells us, the word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Human feelings and reasonings are not enough to guide us through this sensitive topic. And so, Father, I pray that you would give give us light, give us understanding. Uh, Give me light and understanding. Guide us as we talk about this important subject. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, one more disclaimer before we get into it, and that is, I may not cover what you want me to hear, or what you want to hear, right? I may cover things you don't want to hear. (laughs) This is an attempt at taking the first step forward on this topic, racism. Like it or not, racism is part of our history and a reality we still face in our present. 
And in case you missed that section of your history book, it was racism. The cry for equality that led this country into civil war. With all the division in our country today, we're beginning to look a lot like we did back, when, back then. And many are wondering whether the United States of America is headed again towards another civil war. This issue today, as it was back then, is not one of politics. Racism, at least as I see it, is not solved by pulling down statues, removing pictures from congressional halls, voting out, or voting in a new president. It's not going to solve racism. Racism is not solved by rioting. It can't be solved by protesting. It isn't solved by marching or even through physical violence in the name of justice. Another civil war is not going to fix the problem. If war and physical demonstrations could solve racism, it would be over today. How do we know? Because history is filled with wars and protests and marches and violence all trying to end racism, and it has not worked one ounce. I mean, I shouldn't say that, because it has worked some changes, but the changes are outward. The root of racism goes down to the heart. Now, some may say, well, we don't live in a race, racist country. You can't say that. You can't say, well, the North won, slavery ended, and the war is over. May I humbly suggest that although the North won many battles and may have claimed victory at the end, they did not win the ultimate war over the heart. Those who had a supremacist view before the war continued their same views after the war, only covertly. Because racism is not a political issue, racism is not a policy issue, racism is not a legal issue, racism is a heart issue at its core. And so the only remedy which will cure it must be a heart remedy. I'll share with you from Desire of Ages, page 509. Listen carefully to how Jesus approached some of these social upheavals in His day. Desire of Ages, page 509. And it says, The government under which Jesus lived was what? Corrupt and oppressive. On every hand were crying abuses, extortion, intolerance, and grinding cruelty. Yet, the Savior attempted no civil reforms. He attacked no national abuses, nor condemned the national enemies. We continue. He did not interfere with the authority or administration of those in power. He who was our what? Our example kept aloof from earthly government. Not because he was indifferent to the woes of men, but because the, what is it everybody? 
the remedy did not lie in merely human and external measures to be efficient. The cure must reach men individually and must regenerate the heart. The Bible agrees, for it says in Jeremiah 13, and verse 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. Any remedy which attempts to address racism, if it does not influence the heart, can only hide the festering wound which will rupture over and over and over again until the root cause is dealt with just as it has raised its ugly head over and over again in a thousand forms all over the world. Racism is alive today in South Africa despite the work of Mandela in the past. Whites hate blacks. Blacks hate whites. Blacks and whites hate browns. Seems such a ridiculous idea that one human could hate another because of their color, but it's true. Racism is alive in India today. The lighter colored Indians in the north hate or are antagonistic towards the darker ones in the south and vice versa, so I've heard. It's not just an issue of one country. By the way, racism crosses the skin barrier. It's not just darker colored and lighter colored who feel antagonism towards one another. Just look at the Middle East. Israelis and Palestinians are at each other's throats and have been for a long, long time. And it's not just a matter of black black versus white. It's a matter of the human heart. The unrenewed heart finds someone else to hate, someone else to degrade, someone else who becomes less than in order to see myself as better than. Then you look at the Hutus and the Tutsis of Africa exterminating each other in genocide just 26 years ago, 1994, literally trying to wipe one another's race off the face of the earth. And they were both the same tone of skin. Racism goes further. It's deeper. It runs, it shows that malice runs deeper than our melanin. The Jews were the targets of racism in Nazi Germany. The Nazis tried to systematically wipe out the Jews. Go to the concentration camps and you'll find what humans will do to humans who they have labeled as their inferiors. Even during Jesus' time, we find racism. But the ones who were the racist were the Jews themselves during Jesus' time. John chapter 4 and verse 9. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, also drink from me a Samaritan, or ask a drink from me a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. We won't eat with you. We won't enter your homes. We won't use the same bathroom as you. We won't eat at the same table as you. We will have nothing to do with you. And you quickly realize that racism is not an American phenomenon. Racism is not something only our country deals with. Racism is a condition of the unrenewed 
human heart going all the way back thousands of years. And it doesn't need to just target skin color. Racism can target anyone. And you know, racism is not something we're exclusively dealing with in 2020. It's been part of the human journey for thousands of years. And according to the Bible, it's going to exist until Jesus comes again. No protest, no march, no civil war is going to end it. How do we know? You look in Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 16, and the Apostle John saw slavery continuing to exist at the second coming of Jesus. Revelation 6, verse 15, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and everyone... What is it, everyone? Every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall in us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. When Jesus comes again, racism is still there. There will be free men and there will be bondmen. What I want you to see today is that racism is a universal issue and that it is, it is inborn, woven into the fabric of our sinful natures so that the remedy for what we see in Portland and Seattle and Atlanta and L.A. and D.C. and cities and states across this country is not going to be solved by protesting alone. What Portland needs is Jesus. By saying this, I'm not invalidating or minimizing the issue of racism, injustice, or the need for reform. But what I am doing is saying that the cure, the remedy, is not what you see on TV or read on Facebook. We need more soul winners, not more protesters. For it is Christ that makes the difference in the human heart. It is Christ that gives me the ability to sympathize with, listen to, and walk with those who have been recipients of injustice or abuse. It is Christ that gives those victimized by those in authority power to forgive, pray for, and treat with Christian love those who abuse their authority. You can demand justice and equality. You can hold a sign that says black lives matter and these expressions are not necessarily wrong. We do need justice and equality and the lives of black men and women do matter and should matter, but external movements cannot fix an internal problem. Our world needs another power working on the heart. Listen to what Ellen White so eloquently said in Steps to Christ, page 18. There must be a power working from within. A new life from above before men can be changed from sin to holiness. That power is Christ. His grace alone can quicken the lifeless faculties of the soul and attract it to God, to holiness. And then she continues. 
The Savior said, except a man be born from above, unless he shall receive a new heart. And notice what, what's in that new heart. New what? New desires, purposes, and motives leading to a new life. He cannot see the kingdom of God. The idea that it is necessary only to develop the good that exists in man by nature is a what? Is a fatal Deception. The answer to racism is Jesus. And once, because Jesus is the power that changes the heart. And once Jesus takes full possession of the heart, a change takes place in our views, in our attitudes, and then finally is manifested in our actions. Our views. When Jesus comes into your life, you see things differently. You see others differently. Our attitudes. When Jesus comes into your life, your feelings and attitudes towards other people and, and their behavior changes. Our actions. When Jesus comes into your life and changes your views and attitudes, you begin to respond differently to those who are different than you. What are the new views that Jesus brings into your life? Number one, when Christ comes into your life, He gives you a creation perspective. Now, what's a creation perspective? The perspective that has been fed through our secular schools, not our secular schools, but the state and the government secular schools, the public schools, the view that has been fed through these schools is not a creationist perspective, but an evolutionary perspective, which even though they don't espouse racism, evolution at its core supports racism. So the very thing that they preach to your children in public schools promotes the very thing that Portland protesters are trying to end. It's a vicious cycle. Without acknowledging that a godless evolutionary perspective which says we, we evolve from lower life forms implies that there are lower forms of human beings. And higher forms. This is what evolution teaches. And that today, just as in the past, we are in, on an evolutionary track where higher forms of humans will replace lower forms of humans. This is evolution. And it's lauded. It's lauded by progressive Christians as well. The same Christians who will sit there and through vote and voice, tell us all about LGBTQ and Black Lives Matter and, all, and, and feminism and their movement and all of these sorts of things hold to this evolutionary stance. I say there cannot be true equality if you believe in evolution. There can't. In Charles Darwin's original print of his book, The Origin of Species, you know what the subtitle says? 
the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Charles Darwin drew the line between higher and lower forms of humans along lines of color. Listen to his admission from, this admission from Darwin. Charles Darwin, The Descent of Man, page 156. At some future period, not very distant, as measured by centuries, the civilized race of man, i.e. Europeans. Now I added what's in brackets. I added what's in brackets. The civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace throughout the world the savage races, i.e. indigenous populations. Again, I, I am the one who added the brackets. This was Charles Darwin's view, and you cannot come... That is the natural view if you accept evolution. When Jesus comes into your life, though your perspective changes from evolutionary to creationist. And with this change comes a new lens to view human life through. Acts chapter 17, it tells us in verse 26, and the Apostle Paul, who was a creationist, and spoke and preached through a creationist perspective, said this, and God hath made of what? One blood, all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and had determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitations. A creationist perspective. We might not share the same color skin, but the Bible tells me we share the same blood. Whether you are white or black or brown or yellow or red, God created you in Adam. Just as God did not create red flowers as superior to yellow yellow flowers, but He did create them both. Just as the apple tree cannot say to the pineapple bush, I'm superior to you because I'm taller. So the races of mankind were not created in a hierarchy of value with some colors somehow of different value than others. The Bible says that when God looked at humanity in Adam, He made all of humanity. He made all of humanity in His image. And because we are made in His image, we have value and worth from him. Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Then God said, let us make man. And this is mankind, all of humanity in our image, according to our likeness. In his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. A creation perspective says, you have the same value, worth, and potential that I have. We were given the value and potential by God who created us, male or female, black, brown, yellow, red, or white, in His image. And notice how the Declaration of Independence, written in 1776, is founded in a creation perspective. Notice what it says. By the, by the way, ratified July 4, 1776. And we're coming up on the 4th of July very soon. And I'm somewhat disappointed because... We've been enjoying going to the Estacada Timber Festival every 4th of July. 
And it's just not the same to see somebody chopping wood on TV as it is to see them doing that in person. Here's the preamble. And uh, maybe you can read it with me. We're all Americans, or at least we all live here. Let's read it together. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, where in the world did they come up with this idea that we, were, we are equal? Creation. A creation perspective is the foundation for equality. And you are not naturally going to have a creation perspective without Christ abiding in your heart. Because the natural man is enmity against God. And is not subject to the law of God. Is not subject to God. Because a creationist perspective also says that although we're equal, we're equally bound to follow the same Creator. And that we must follow His laws and that He has rights over all of us to tell us what we should do to tell us how we should express ourselves, which includes how we express our sexuality, which includes how we treat one another, which includes the day that He has set aside to be worshipped on. Let me bring you back to the remedy You cannot produce this outlook of equality, this creationist perspective through your own power. You can't read self-help books like How to Be an Anti-Racist or White Fragility and say, well, that will fix the problem. I just need to read these books and then I'll get it in my head and figure it all out. For one, human nature often tends to swing from one unbalanced position to another. In an effort to support blacks or Hispanics, some will begin to hate whites. But all we've done is trade racism for racism. It's not the answer. Another common human error is to outwardly proclaim my anti-racist position and yet the only people I hang out with, invite over to dinner, or feel comfortable to socialize with are those who look just like me. And maybe now would be a good time to take an inventory of what sort of people do you hang out with? Invite over to dinner. Call and talk to. Are they only individuals who look like you? Because it's easy to say with our mouth, I'm anti-racist. I believe in equality, but it's much different to live that sort of life. And how we live declares where our heart really lies. Not just what we say.
A creation perspective must be seeded deep within your heart through the Holy Spirit, and Christ must water that seed over and over through His power before fruit is born in your life through changed views. Not imposed by some book, not mandated by some law, but produced by a changed life. Another perspective shift that happens when Christ fills your life and heart heart which is similar to the creation perspective perspective is the redemption perspective Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13 through 14 says but now in Christ Jesus ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ for he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Now to understand this verse a bit more, you need to understand some of the verbiage contained and the image that would have been portrayed to the Jewish mind reading this passage. You see, in the Jewish temple, there were walls. And these walls kept certain groups back Uh, on one side, and only certain groups were allowed to pass to the wall closer and closer uh, to the presence of God. The high priest was the one, the only one, who could go all the way into the most holy place. Then there was a curtain. And uh, past that curtain, none of the rest of the priests could go, but but the rest of the priests could go into the holy place. And then there was another curtain. And past this curtain, no Jewish male could go. Only the priests could go. But the Jewish males could all be within the courtyard. And then there was another curtain. And past that curtain, no Jewish females could go. They were to stay in the women's court, the court of, of, of the, the ladies. And past the court of the ladies, there was a, a wall. I don't know how tall it was because I wasn't there, but what I've read is it was, it was enough for you to see over and maybe only tall enough for you to, to step over. It's a wall. And past that wall... No non-Jew was to pass. No matter what they believed in their heart, they could not. So a worshiper of God could come up to that wall, that little wall, and there they would see a sign. And the sign would say that Gentiles, Samaritans, and non-Jews could not pass this point, and if they did pass this point, they would do so at the peril of their own lives. And so there were different classes. There were different groups. When Jesus died, what was the first thing to tear open? The first curtain there between the holy and the most holy place was torn from top to bottom. But that wasn't the only wall to be broken down. 
Each wall, each successive wall through the death of Christ was broken down. Now the wall was symbolic of a wall that existed in the hearts of the Jews. There was a view within Judaism of superiority and exclusion. Those who were not Jewish by birth were classed by the Jews in a lower tier of society and excluded from the sacred. This is the image that would have come to the Jewish mind as they read through this verse by Paul. But it was not the literal wall that Jesus broke down with His death. The literal wall was only symbolic of the true wall that existed in the human hearts. And it was this wall, the wall of racial division, the wall of superiority, arrogance, pride, and self-elevation. That wall, that wall is broken down through the blood of Christ. Peace takes its place. And the two that were separated by this invisible wall are brought together through a new redemption perspective. Here's the new view that Christ brings to the converted and changed heart. Galatians 3 verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. In harmony with this, Ellen White encouraged Seventh-day Adventists to work with and for all races. In the Southern Work, page 55, it says, The white people who embrace the truth in the Southern field, if what? Notice what she says, if converted. Because Ellen White realized that racism was a heart issue, and that unless you were converted... Even if you profess to be a Christian, you would be racist in your heart. If converted to God, then what will happen? We'll discern the fact that the plan of redemption embraces every soul that God has created. The walls of sectarianism and caste and race will fall down when the true missionary spirit enters the hearts of men. Prejudice is melted away by the love of God. All will realize that they are two become laborers together with God. Both the Ethiopian and the white race are God's purchased possession and our work is to improve every talent that has been lent to us of God to save the souls of both white and black. If men and women of either race refuse the truth of God, they must answer to God for their rejection of Jesus Christ who died for their salvation. With all our our might, we must do our work now. Now, when did she say this? She said this at a time when our country was on the verge of civil war over racism. There were protests. There were men in the north and men in the south who were crying out, some saying one thing, some saying another, and she says the answer is not to march down the streets of your city. The answer is to introduce people to Jesus. Because white and black need Jesus together. And only when Jesus converts the heart is there a change. Society will continue as it is until Jesus comes. 
But individuals can change. You can change. I can change. But I cannot change without Christ. I can't. It is Christ that makes the difference. Once Christ has changed our perspective, our attitudes are the next thing to change. Before we look at this section, I want you to ask yourself some questions. What is your attitude towards those marching in the protests? Do you group them all together in your viewpoint? Or do you have different attitudes towards the violent protesters and those who are peaceful? What is your attitude towards those of a different race than you? How does your true attitude display itself in your life and how you relate to others? How does your attitude display itself in your recent social media posts? In your conversations with others? In your text messages with others? And as you think about this and self-reflect, I want you to ask this final question. As I honestly look at the attitudes in my life and how I'm relating with these things that are happening around me, can I honestly say that my attitude is in harmony with Christ? Now that you've had a moment to self-reflect, I want you to look at how our attitudes change when Christ enters our life. Number one, love replaces bitterness and hatred. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, it says, If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Manuscript 50, 1894, Ellen White said, Love is a tender plant and it must be what? It must be cultivated and cherished and the roots of bitterness all have to be what? Plucked up around it in order for it to have room to circulate. And then it will bring in under its influence all the powers of the mind, all the heart, so that we shall love God supremely and our neighbor as ourselves. The reason I had you ask those questions of self-reflection is because I want you to see where your attitudes of bitterness, where your own attitudes of whatever, hatred, where those are, because unless we identify them, how can we deal with them? Love must replace bitterness. And bitterness must be uprooted from our hearts. Number two, critical attitudes need to be replaced by an influential attitude. When we see protesters, is our attitude to criticize or to influence for Christ? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 and 15, it says, Pursue peace with all people. That's all people who agree with me, right? That's all people in my political party, right? 
That's all people who, uh, who go to my church, right? Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. All right, let me bring you to another, another verse, Acts chapter 8. Here... Um, you have Simon the sorcerer and Peter is talking to him, says, Repent therefore of this thy wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, What did he say? Pray ye to the Lord for me that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. How does someone respond who has a critical attitude? If I view others with a critical spirit, I'm going to do what? I'm either going to withdraw or I'm going to fight, right? If I don't agree with you and I have a critical attitude towards you, I'm either going to shun you or I'm going to fight you. And that's how many of us, perhaps some of us, are responding to the things that are happening in our world today. With a critical attitude... And we either turn off the TV and say, I'm not going to listen to this anymore. Maybe you shouldn't be listening to it. But I'm not going to pay attention to this stuff anymore. Or we sit there and bicker at the television from our, from our chair. Or we write posts fighting through social media. Or worse yet, we go down there and join them in breaking windows and pulling over statues and doing whatever. Where, what does that come from? That comes from a bitter and critical attitude. Either avoidance or conflict. But these are not the methods of Christ. When Jesus comes into the heart, our heart is transformed from bitterness and criticism to one that seeks reconciliation and peace and transformation through influence. Now, I don't know how you view the protesters in Portland or elsewhere. Certainly, we can agree that many of their outward actions are repulsive, looting, burning, destroying, cursing, godless conduct. But what if instead of criticism, we took time to walk among them? Befriend them. What sort of attitude, adjustment would have to happen in your heart for you to be willing to walk among these sorts of people? To work to become their friends. What sort of attitude would you have to have in order to, to do that? To seek to understand their journeys and private pains. To listen to them. 
to pray for them and to pray with them for our nation? What if instead of criticism and condemnation, we carried with us an attitude of transforming our community through godly influence, friendship, and love? Now, I'm not suggesting that you carry signs and sit there and protest with them. What I'm suggesting is that an attitude that changes from bitterness and um, what word did I use? Criticism. There you go. Uh, When we change our attitude from criticism to one where we're looking to transform individuals, when we're working to love and listen to them, Our actions change. What a difference it made when Jesus approached people with an attitude of acceptance. Hearts were won. Lives were changed. And the heart condition began to be repaired. Isn't this the mind of Christ? And isn't this what we want? Now Jesus could walk down the the center street, downtown Jerusalem, and say, this is what you're doing wrong. And 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 I'm appalled at what's happening in your home. And I can't believe in what's, what's in your refrigerator. And I, and I just am going to drop over with how you treated your wife last night. And You know, he could have walked down Jerusalem and just pointed all of that. In fact, he was in a better place to do that than we are, right? He could see right into men's lives. In fact, when that woman was drugged from that home naked caught in the very act and cast at his feet, Jesus could have been the first one to say, here's the list, woman. But he didn't do that, did he? Everyone else was ready to cast a stone and Jesus knelt down and wrote another list in the sand. And as the men who are just as guilty as that woman read the list, There in the sand that Jesus had written, they dropped their stones and walked away. And the only one who was equipped or the only one who really had the right to condemn her said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He sought to reach her heart. He sought transformational missionary evangelism in her life. If our mission as a church is really to seek and to save the lost, as Jesus has called us to do, our attitudes need to shift towards those we disagree with. Rather than looking at condemning those who do things, which honestly you probably have a right to condemn, why not look for ways to win their hearts? To the gospel. Because when Jesus comes into those hearts, racism can't help but die. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. When our 
views and our attitudes are changed by Christ, we will see the fruit in our actions. Our life will demonstrate a change. We will begin to act like Christ in our world and racism can begin to heal. Now, what does that look like? Let's go back to our example we brought up earlier when Jesus, a Jew, approached the woman at the well, a Samaritan. Here's an example, a sample case where Jesus role-modeled how a Christian should respond to racism. Number one, he mingled with those who were different than himself. When the rest of the Jewish nation secluded themselves, excluded, when they had that, that view, remember I talked about where you either... You either run from it or you fight it. That critical spirit that causes you to withdraw or to, or to fight. Jesus did, did something different. He mingled. John chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his own journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Who should come but the Samaritan? I think he knew she was going to come there. And after they had conversed for a while, in verse 40 it says, So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, something a Jew would never do. And how long did he stay there? Two days. And he ate their food from their hands. And he slept in their beds. And he walked with them hand in hand down their streets. And he touched them with his own hands. And showed them love. He was there two days. And after he mingled with them for two days, what does it say? And many more believed because of his own word. Step number one, you want to heal racism? Mingle with those you disagree with. Mingle with those who are different than you. Not to become like them. I'm not suggesting that we go to bars to win, to win the drunks. Or that we go into the cannabis shop to win the the weed eaters. I don't know why that just came to me. But what I am suggesting is that if you want to win somebody, you've got to be, you've got to be near them. You've got to win somebody from your couch. Number two, he showed his sympathy for them. What if Jesus had just come with condemnation to that woman? Would he have done any lasting, had any lasting influence in her life? Not at all. John 4 verse 7 said, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said said to her, Give me a drink. Now notice that Jesus didn't wait for her to initiate the conversation or show that first kindness, but He offered her His trust by asking for a drink. He invited conversation by initiating it through a kind request. He gave opportunity for her to respond. He showed His sympathy for her. Jesus mingled. He showed His sympathy He ministered to her need. Jesus knew this woman's deep spiritual need and offered her Himself as the Savior. But in the context of thirst, after all, a woman coming to the well at noon has to be thirsty. Why else would she be coming to the well? And notice how Jesus addresses her through her thirst. 
Jesus answered and said to her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. The woman saith, uh, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing into everlasting life. Then the woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Was the woman thirsty? Yes. Jesus met her where she was. He spoke to her need and he offered her her spiritual need as well. Notice that Jesus is speaking to a need and the woman responds according to her need. And then, through these actions, Jesus won the confidence of this woman and then he reveals himself as the Messiah and bids her to follow him. John chapter 4, verse 25 through 26. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. When Christ comes into our life, we too will be willing to win people through friendship evangelism. This is Christ's method of erasing racism from the heart. Listen to Ellen White, what she says. Ministry of Healing, page 143. Let's read it together. Okay, you read it from your screen at home. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed His sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then He bade them follow me. By the way, you know what our next uh, Sabbath school Bible study guide is going to be? I love this. Making friends for God, the joy of sharing in His mission. And it has a black and a white woman studying together. How wonderful. What if that was a picture taken from our congregation? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Um, God is calling Stone Tower Church. God is calling you as a Christian to be part of the answer to the racial divide that we see in our country today. How can I be part of the answer to that? Well, number one, pray for Christ to change your views and attitudes towards those who don't share your skin tone or to those who don't share your gender. Or to those who don't share your political views. Even if you think there is no problem or racism in you, you can still ask Christ to open your eyes to areas you may be blind to so that you can see things the way He does, so that you can feel towards others the way He does. Number two, look for opportunities to foster friendships and closer relationships with those who don't share your same ethnic background. Let positive actions on our part bring about change. Number three, determine that you will focus your life on fixing the root of the racism issue through living a life centered on Christ and sharing Him with others through friendship evangelism. My time is up. 
when we need, uh, we need to ever keep before our eyes that our mission in this world is to seek and save the lost. Don't let Satan use the coronavirus to get you off track from why, what God has called you to do as a Christian. Don't let Satan get this Black Lives Matter protesting to move you off track from your mission. Your mission is to introduce people to Jesus. This is our mission as a church. Don't lose sight of the focus. Jesus is coming soon, friends. The the signs in our world say that Jesus is coming soon. We cannot afford to lose our focus now. How many of you would like to say, Lord, I give you permission to work in my life. I give you permission to change my attitudes and views. Lord, I give you permission to use me to win somebody who's different than me. That this this problem, this root can be changed through Jesus. Is that you? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for hearing our our prayer, our cry. I want to pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church as we seek to navigate through racism, as we seek to navigate through our own race, our own attitudes, as we seek to put all these pieces together, I pray that, that they would be put together through Christ. I pray that Christ would be found living in me and living in each one of us. I pray, Lord, that you would empower us and embolden us to share our faith. Wherever we are, wherever we may be, let us find creative ways to share our faith abroad. And I pray that we can be part of the group that prepares people for Jesus' soon return. Bless us, Lord, as we seek Uh, seek and save the lost. And I pray, Lord, that you would lead and guide us. Thank you for seeing our commitments today. Uh, Bless Mark as he made his decision for you. May many others follow in his footsteps and and stand and make their decision for you um, and not wait, but make their decision for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.